What is up, Self Company? You guys doing good? Everybody good? Good week? It's good to be back. Uh, I was down in uh, Florida on vacation with my family, and uh, I miss you guys. Uh, I mean this genuinely. Like, I, this is one of my favorite days of the week. I love being here on a Thursday night uh, with you all. Well, if I haven't met you, my name is Jonathan Randall. I serve on staff as one of the directors. Uh, we are glad that you are here, whether you're in the room, you're on the live stream, uh, we are glad that you are with us. If you've got a Bible, open it up to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22 is where we're going to be tonight. Uh, well, like has been said from stage, we are in the middle of a series uh, that we kicked off a couple weeks ago called The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what we're doing is we're taking a look at these three guys. It's a, it's a grandfather, a father, and a son. It's a family. And we're asking the question, why is God faithful to this dysfunctional, messy family? What can we learn about God in the midst of this family gone wrong? And tonight, we come to perhaps one of the most famous stories in your Bible. It is a story full of intrigue. It's a story full of suspense. There's a lot of literary detail. It is a masterpiece, if you will. If this uh, uh, story was written today, it would win a Pulitzer Prize. If it was turned into a movie, it would win the Oscar for Best Picture. It is a legendary story. It's the last major event involving God and Abraham, and perhaps the reason it is so famous is how divisive this story can be. Many people, millions of people have looked to this story in Genesis 22 as an inspiration of what it is to have radical faith in the God of the Bible. And still countless others have looked at this story with moral disgust, and it's caused them to actually walk away from the God of the Bible. So I don't want to waste any time. Let's actually jump right in. So kick your feet back, grab that popcorn. We're going to jump right into Genesis chapter 22. Legendary story in your Bible, masterpiece. Starting in verse 1, it says this. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place on which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am. 
Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place on which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar and on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by the horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. This is God's word in Genesis chapter 22, a famous story. Now, I have to confess, as I read this story this week, this question kept coming back to my mind over and over and over again. This question rattled around in my brain, and this question is this. Is my faith in this God? Is my faith in this God? Is this the God I serve? Am I all in with this God? Because if I'm honest, here's my temptation. My temptation is I want to believe that I trust, serve, and obey God, the God of the Bible. But so often when I take a look at my life and I read the scriptures and I see the God that is presented in the Bible, so often I realize that the God that I serve, love, and obey is a God that I make up in my head and not the God of the Bible. So often I, I look at this story and I read it and I see that God is putting Abraham to the test, but so often I want to enter into the story and say, no, God, I want to put you to the test. God, how could you ask Abraham to do such a wicked thing? God, is it even possible to have the faith that Abraham has? God, will you actually provide in my life like you provided in Abraham's life? God, are you just something I believe in? Or do you actually have the power to change my life? And I think for all of us tonight, this matters. Because here's the deal, Salt Company. It is not a matter of whether you will have faith. Every single person in this room has faith. You trust and serve something. The question is this. Will you put your faith in the God of the Bible? Will you serve that God? Is this the God, the God that's in these pages? Is that God the one that you really trust? Tonight, I have three points that I want to look at as we unpack this story. They're simply this, the test, the three days, the trade. The test, the three days, the trade. First point is this, the test. Do you trust this God? Do you trust this God? In verses 1 and 2, we see that God tests 
Abraham. It says it in the text. And it's a very disturbing request, to put it lightly. He says in verse 2, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, I shall tell you. Let me just address this head on, because if, if we have any integrity in this room, if I have any integrity as a preacher, as a person of the 21st century, my first question to this should be, how could God ask such a thing? How could God ask such a wicked thing? Well, let me give two considerations that I want us to take a look at. There's more than two, but these two will help us understand the story. Because really what we need to do is consider how the original hearers, the original audience, would have heard this story. If we can put the headphones on of the original audience, it'll actually help us understand what is going on here with this type of request. The first consideration is this. This is just Bible uh, equipping, reading your Bible 101. Uh, Last week, Sarah, uh, who shared uh, from the Word, wisely pointed out to us that there are passages that are prescriptive, And there are passages that are descriptive. A passage that is prescriptive is saying, hey, this is a command, go and do likewise. A passage that is descriptive is just saying, hey, this is what happened. This is a passage that is descriptive. This is not a passage that is prescriptive. You do not need to go and do likewise, okay? When you go home from Saul Company and you go into your dorm room and you see that your roommate has just left their laundry all over the place, or maybe she's left the dishes in the sink, or maybe he's left his whiskers in the, in the sink, you might be thinking, hey, the preacher preached a message on God killing Abraham. I really want to kill my, my roommate right now, right? We've all been, come on, am I the only one that's been there? You come home to your dorm and you're like, why is this place trashed? Who are you? I'm going to kill you. Get the knife right now. I'm the only, I'm the only one. Okay, apparently I'm the only one. Um, don't do that. This text is not telling you to do that. The second consideration for us uh, to, to look at is this. If we notice, the text does not specifically say, go kill your son Isaac. It doesn't say that. If that's what it said, then Abraham either would have gone into a tent with the knife and been like, we're done, you're gone, or because Abraham's a man of faith, would have said, God, you're crazy. I'm not, I'm done, I'm out. I'm not going to kill my son. Instead, notice what the text says specifically. This is very important for us to understand culturally what's going on. He says, I want you to sacrifice your son as an offering. This is an act of worship that he's calling Abraham to. Why is that significant? Well, in that culture, uh, there were many gods. There was many religions. And some of these religions actually required child sacrifice. And what they would do is we believed that the gods control our livelihoods, our crops, and our food, and our water. And if, if, we, if, if they're mad, they'll take all of that away from us and we'll die. So what we'll do is we'll take our firstborn son, we'll take one of our, our, child, our children, and we will sacrifice that child to the gods in order to appease them, in order that they will protect the stuff that uh, we need in order for us to be alive. And so for Abraham, culturally, put yourself in him in this boat. It, it's, it's not a, a leap to think. It's reasonable to propose that Abraham is thinking, oh, the God of the Bible is just like the other gods I've known. 
Because up until this point in the Bible, we don't know if Abraham is only serving the God of the Bible. He might be serving other gods. We don't really know. We know that there's been these interactions with the God of the Bible with Abraham, but he could have other gods. He's come out of a culture of idolatry. He's been around these other religions, and so he's thinking, oh, the God of the Bible is just like these other gods. I need to make a sacrifice in order to appease him. And so for Abraham, put yourself in Abraham. He's not a 21st century person. This command would not have been disturbing. It would have been normal. He would have understood this. However, the story is radically shocking in that culture for what happens. Because as the story plays out, God doesn't actually let Abraham kill his son. Thus showing that part of the plan in this story all along was to show that God is not like the other gods. God does not demand a child sacrifice, but instead he's the God who provides the sacrifice. Part of this story is to show Abraham that there is no other God like him. Abraham, I'm not just one of these many gods that you serve. I'm the God. I'm the only God. I'm the true God. I'm the God that doesn't demand a sacrifice. I'm the God that provides a sacrifice. You can trust me. I am trustworthy. See, as you read the story of Abraham, beginning in chapter 12, all the way till now, you've seen over and over and over again in the story of Abraham, God has given reason after reason after reason that he is trustworthy, that he can be trusted. In fact, a really interesting note is at the end of chapter 21, the second to last verse, it says that Abraham worshiped the Lord. He worshiped God, the everlasting one. What does that mean? It means that God is the God of the big picture. He holds the beginning to the end. He has history all in his hands. And then fast forward two verses later into Genesis chapter 22, verse 1, which I've just read to you. In the Hebrew, it literally says this in verse 1. After these things, that God or this God tested Abraham. Meaning the, it's the everlasting God that, God that Abraham had just worshipped in chapter 21 that is now testing Abraham in chapter 22. Why is that significant? Why do I bring that up? Because God over and over and over again is trying to show Abraham, I'm the same God, I'm the true God, I'm the only God, and I'm trustworthy. I own it all. I have history from beginning to end. I'm the everlasting one, which means if you trusted me in the past, you can trust me with this. You can trust me into the future. Because whatever else this story teaches us, it starts with getting us to see that God, the God of the Bible, the God of the big picture, the God of it all, the only one and true God can be trusted. The question is, do you and I trust this God? Do we trust him? Because for Abraham and for me and you, it's not enough to just say that we do. We have to demonstrate it. We have to demonstrate that we trust God. I remember uh, taking my driver's test when I was 16. Now in Florida, um, they don't take you out on the roads to do your driver's test. They take you to like some obstacle course that they created. I'm not sure why they do that. Um, I think it's just because it's Florida and 
that's enough. That's all you need to know. Um, I swear, though, I felt like when I was taking my driver's test, it felt like I was trying out to be a NASCAR driver. I mean, this thing was ridiculous. I, I had to, like, my very first uh, part of the test, I had to drive out on this, like, racetrack thing that literally had, like, like, the road wasn't flat. It was like this. And I had to, like, come around a corner, and I had to park inside a parking space that was small enough for, like, only a golf cart. And, of course, I'm dumb. I took uh, my, uh, my first car was a GMC Jimmy SUV. So this thing was not small. And I'm, like, coming around the corner having to, like, park in this parking space that is just way too small. And then the second thing I had to do is I had to parallel park. But I've never seen this up until, like, this is the only time I've seen this. They literally had cones that moved closer as the, like, test was going on. So, like, you had to go quick to parallel park. I'm not sure why they did that. I've never seen that in real life where the cones and the cars magically get smaller. But all I know is every time I see, like, parking measured by, like, cones, a rash breaks out all over my body, and it freaks me out. Um, and then I had to jump over a ramp through a flaming hoop over 19 cars. No, I didn't do that part. Uh, but that's, like, what this test felt like. It was crazy. I'm ashamed to admit that I failed this test uh, the very first time that I took it. And that's always the worst. At least it was for me because, like, they don't tell you that right away. And so she's like, hey, can you go to the parking lot? And so you got, and the parking lot was way away from the test. I'm, like, driving over to the parking lot. She's like, hey, can you put it in park? I'm like, all right, I'll put it in park. And then she's like, you failed the test today because you didn't listen to my instructions, right? And what, what do you think was the first thing that came out of my mouth when she said that? But I'm a good driver, are you kidding me? I'm a good driver. Look at your obstacle course. It's crazy. Uh, that was what I wanted to say, but I didn't. I, but I did say I was a good driver. And then she just literally doesn't have to say anything. She just sighs, points out the windshield, and I look out the windshield, and there's literally like seven or eight cones that I had like knocked over with my car, and a line of teenagers that are looking at me like, is that the point of the driver's test, or is this guy just a moron? How does how this work? Um, anyway, the point that I'm trying to make in this is I couldn't just tell the instructor that I was a good driver. I had to be tested to see if I could actually drive the car. And if I would have just have listened to the instructions from, or the directions from the instructor, I would have passed the test. Why? Because the instructor was trustworthy. She knew what it took to actually pass the test. Because similarly, God tests us not to be cruel or mean, but in order for, to demonstrate that we actually trust him and thereby prove that he is trustworthy. When we demonstrate that we trust him, we prove that God is trustworthy. Again, confession for me, as I worked on this test this week, or this um, uh, text this week, it felt like a test, uh, I have to be honest, I, I wrestled with this idea that God tested Abraham. Like, I, I don't like this idea that God tests people in order to prove the genuineness of their faith. Like, I would never ask my child to prove their love for me. That just seems odd as a parent and like savage at worst, right? Why would I do that? But the more that I study this text, the more I've come to realize that when God tests our faith, it has a whole lot more to do with demonstrating God's trustworthiness than it does my radical step of faith. 
It has far more to do with God's trustworthiness than it does my radical step of faith. Let me put it to you in a picture. If my child was in our house and it was burning to the ground and she was at the second story window and I was yelling at her, jump, jump, what do you think my reasoning for her to jump is going to be? I'm not going to shout to my daughter and say, jump and prove your love to me. No, I'm going to say, jump, trust me, I'll catch you. Guys, that's God's posture to us. So much of what he calls us into through testing to demonstrate the genuineness of our faith doesn't really have much to do with how radical our faith is. It has everything to do with how trustworthy God is. God is so trustworthy. But this doesn't totally resolve Abraham's particular test, does it? Is God just asking Abraham to just blind leap blind faith, no matter what he asks of him, even if it's morally reprehensible, even if no matter what the command is, don't ask questions, Abraham, just jump, just blind leap of faith. Is that what this story is about? Well, no, and that leads me to my second point, which is this. The three days. Do you believe this God can do anything? Do you believe this God can do anything? If we notice in verse 3, Abraham starts immediately the preparations to go make this sacrifice of Isaac. And if you notice in uh, verse 4, it notes that it took three days to get to this place. That means that Abraham calculated his decision-making there. His faith, which was demonstrated in his obedience to to, to carry this out, it's not a fly-off-the-handle, knee-jerk reaction where he just jumps in with both feet and doesn't have time to think about what he's actually doing. No, he has made a committed decision to do this. Over three days of travel, over all of the time it took to prepare what he needed with the wood and the rope and the knife and the servants and getting his son Isaac to come with him. All of that was a decision that was commitment over time. Because this means that faith is not some high emotional response that only lasts for a moment. Faith is a journey towards full commitment and surrender to God alone. But we also learn that Abraham had some reasons for what propelled his faith forward. This is not a blind faith. This was a faith that was rooted in seeing God work in the past, which gave him confidence to believe God was going to work even in this circumstance. The text actually gives us uh, some hints. In verse 5, it says, uh, Abraham says to his servants, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. In the original language, when Abraham says, and come again to you, it's plural. In other words, it says, we will come again to you. In other words, Abraham is saying, I have no idea how this is going to all work out, but here's what I am confident of. When Isaac and I go up on this mountain, no matter what happens up there, both of us are coming back down. Both of us are coming off this mountain. In fact, Hebrews 11, 17 through 19 gives credibility to this as it looks into this story uh, some thousand years later. It says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. 
He considered that God was even able to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Because Abraham believed so strongly that he knew that even if Isaac was killed, God had the power to bring him back to life. He believed that God could do anything. Where did Abraham get this kind of faith? Where did Abraham get this kind of faith that God could bring his son back from the dead? He had already seen God bring life from death. Remember the story. What did God do in Sarah? Sarah, his wife, was infertile. In fact, she was beyond the point of having babies due to her age, and yet God brought life to her womb when there wasn't life. And Abraham knew if God can bring life with my wife and me to conceive a child, then he can bring my son back from the dead. He saw God at work in the past, and that propelled him to trust him in this circumstance. We also see in the story that Isaac starts to mimic the faith that he sees in his father. In fact, he asks Abraham, my father, behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb and the burnt offering? He knows, the text lets us in on this, Isaac knows what's happening here. He knows he's going to get sacrificed. He he sees the situation. He knows something doesn't add up, but he goes with his father willingly. How do I know that? Because the text says two times that both of them go up together to that mountain. This isn't really point of, uh, the point of the, the text, but I want to challenge us that your faith will always impact somebody else's faith. Your faith will always impact somebody else's faith. If you are a, a Christian, a believer, you've placed your faith in Jesus here tonight. When people look at your faith, do they see something that is worth imitating? Don't let your faith, if you are a Christian here, don't let your faith just be this private thing between you and God. I, I come to Salt Company, I come to church, I have my city group, but no one else knows about my faith in the God of the Bible. No, invite people into your space. Invite people to Salt Company. Invite people into your city group. Invite people into your house and in your stories that they may see the God you have faith in. Additionally, if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, you've never placed your faith in Jesus, my challenge to you is do you actually know personally a Christian that you've seen their faith up close? Don't just critique Christianity from afar. Don't just go on the internet and on the blogs and build up some straw man so that you can tear that person down. Get to know an actual Christian. Get to know their faith and see what it looks like before you just dismiss it out of hand. Okay, that's not really part of the sermon. That was just for free. Uh, Let's come back to Abraham for a moment. I want us to see what is really going on in this text. Remember, Abraham is introduced in Genesis chapter 12. Abraham is called to leave his past all behind him. He says, leave your father's house. Go to the land in which I will show you. Leave it all behind. That's what we taught in the first text. In this section, Abraham is called to give up his son. What does that mean? It means that Abraham is being called to give up his future as well. 
Abraham, don't just give up your past. Give up your future. See, see, to give up Isaac in this text and in this story and in this circumstance is not just to lose something precious for Abraham, although that's true. He does love Isaac very much. But to lose Isaac, to put him on that altar and kill him, is to lose the very promises of God. It's to lose and kill the promises of God. See, Abraham, he doesn't have any sons left. Ishmael is now outside the house. He's away from Abraham. He's not living with him anymore. And what's more, Isaac represents the blessings of God. All of the promises of God are bound up in him. So when Abraham put Isaac on that altar and raised that knife, he might as well have put the promises of God on that altar and raised that knife to the promises of God. Up until this point, Abraham has made sacrifices to God before, but it's always been in response to God making a promise or God renewing a promise. Where's the promise in this text? God is saying, no, I want you to actually kill the promise. I want you to take the promises that I've given to you and I want you to sacrifice them. It's as if God is saying this, Abraham, don't just trust me when you see how I'm going to make good on my promises. Trust me when it looks like the promises that I've given to you have been shattered into pieces. What God is saying is this. Don't just trust me for my promises. Trust me for me. It's not the impending death of Isaac that is the main issue. It's the fact that God doesn't want Abraham to be attached to God's blessings more than God. Salt Company, do you believe that God can do anything? Is he trustworthy to you? Because here's the deal. Until you really believe that God can do anything, you're only using God to get something. Until you believe that God can do anything, you're only using him to get something else. Let me remind you of the God that you serve, the God of the Bible. He's the God who literally spoke galaxies into existence. He pulled dust from the ground and he made humanity. He formed biological cells to create human life in the womb of Sarah. He brought Joseph through the time of evil in Egypt and he made good out of it. He destroyed the greatest enemies on earth in Egypt through his mighty wonders. He opened up the sea for the people of God to walk through. He brought Israel into the promised land and won a war with basically a marching band. He told the sun to stop so that the armies of Israel may succeed. I'm not even outside the first like three books of the Bible. He is the God who raises up kings and raises up the dead, who restores the orphan with the family and restores the land to bear crops. He will not let the wicked get away with their crimes and he will not let the saved get away from his presence. He moved heaven and earth to redeem humanity and he moved across up the hill of Calvary to redeem you and me. He's coming back to destroy all that is evil and he's coming back to bring you and me into his presence forever. Do you believe this God can do anything? I ask you, Salt Company, do you see that his past faithfulness can give you the confidence to trust that this God can do anything? What God has done in the past, 
will give you the confidence to believe that no matter what you're facing right now, today, this Thursday night, no matter what you're going through, you can trust that God can do anything in your circumstance. What does that look like for you? Maybe it means believing God for the courage to share the gospel with a friend. Maybe it means believing that God can actually save your friend. Maybe it means believing God for the courage to confess a sin that you haven't told anyone. Maybe it means believing God can actually forgive your sin. Maybe that means trusting God can still meet your needs and provide for you with or without a significant other, with or without the dream job, with or without the place you want to live. Maybe it means believing that if God has forgiven your past, then he's good enough to care for your future too. Let's wrap this up. My third point, the trade. The trade. Do you look to this God as the one who provides? Do you look to this God as the one who provides? If we pick the text back up in verse 9, uh, we see that Abraham, he comes to the place, right, that God had told him and called him to go to. He makes the altar. He places Isaac on the altar. And as he raises his knife, he's about ready to kill Isaac. He hears a cry from heaven. And in verse 12, it says this, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. God doesn't make him go through this sacrifice, but he places or provides a ram in Isaac's place. Provides a ram in Isaac's place. Let me help explain what is happening here culturally that would give significance to this part of the story. In the ancient culture, the firstborn son was a big deal. This son was, was virtually given everything as an inheritance from the family because the family lived or died by the firstborn taking care of the rest of the family. If I had a, a big farm and I split it up between 12 siblings, that entire family is going to tank because you can't farm the, 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 the land enough to actually take care of each of the other families. So you gave it all to the firstborn, and it was the firstborn's responsibility to take care of the family. But what is interesting in the scriptures is that God, well, first off, God doesn't really actually play this game because you'll see throughout Genesis, he uses the firstborn, he, or uh, he uses the other siblings and not just the firstborn. But over and over again, you'll actually see in the scriptures that God demands that the firstborn belong to him. Over and over again, you'll see, even in Genesis and Exodus, the very first two books of the Bible, God is saying, the firstborn of your family belongs to me. What does that mean? Because we don't really have that in our own culture. What God is trying to communicate to that culture, and they would have understood this by reading that, is that every family owed a debt to God. Because the firstborn son represented the entire family. So every family, every human being on the planet owed a debt to God. But the amazing thing of this story is that God stops the sacrifice. God doesn't allow Abraham to give Isaac as the debt that he owes. He doesn't make Abraham go through with it. Why? 
Because God is the one who provides the ram. And the text says specifically that it is the ram who is sacrificed instead of Isaac. And what does that mean? It means that from the very beginning, God does not demand sacrifices in order for us to earn God's love. Instead, it is God's love that provides the sacrifices necessary for us to be with God. God is, or Abraham's not going up this mountain and he's saying like, look at me, I'm so awesome. I put my faith in God. Everybody's gonna read about this story for like generations. They're gonna wanna imitate me, I'm awesome. No, what does he say when he goes up to that mountain? God will provide the lamb. Guys, Christianity is not about what you give to God. Christianity is about what God gives to you. We are guilty of sin, and sin demands a punishment, and that punishment is death. But God offers a trade, your life, for the life of a sacrifice. But of course, the story leaves us on an unresolved problem, because we know that the blood of a ram can't cover the sins of a human. Just even think of this logically. That's not a fair trade. A ram doesn't equal the life of a human life in value. What you need is a human life for a human life. Well, fast forward 2,000 years from this point, and Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the only Son of God, the firstborn, steps into human history. And he climbs these same mountains in Moriah. Later on in the Bible, we find out that Moriah is where the temple of God is built. It's where Jesus will carry the wood just like Isaac on his back. And he will be put on an altar as a sacrificial lamb. And God will make a trade. His life was taken so that you and I could have ours. And here's the thing. Here's what I know to be true. If Abraham could have somehow appeared at the cross and seeing Jesus cry out in agony, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And to hear silence from heaven, to hear the heaven shatter and break, to hear his father not speak up when he spoke up when Abraham was about ready to slaughter Isaac. And yet when Jesus cries out, there is no one that speaks up for him. If Abraham could stand at the cross and hear Jesus say, it is finished, I know for a fact that Abraham would say God's words back to him and say, now I know. Now I know that you will not withhold your only son from me. Now I know how much you actually love me. The literal translation of the word provide in Hebrew is to see. It's a Hebrew idiom. Uh, we use this idiom in English too. If I were to say, I will see to it that the kitchen is cleaned, I don't mean I'm going to stare at a book on how to clean kitchens. It means that I'll take care of the details and tasks involved with cleaning the kitchen. When God is the God who provides, when this mount is called the mountain where God provides, he is the God who sees to it that our salvation is provided for in full. He is the God who makes the trade. Notice in the text, it says Abraham looks, he sees the place that God had called him to. He sees the sacrifice that God has provided. Over and over again, the scriptures call us to look to the hills. Where does our help come from? It comes from the Lord. I think people 
failed to see how beautiful and captivating their salvation is because they have their eyes in the wrong place. We are so stuck looking at the things of this world thinking they provide a better salvation. Or we're stuck looking at our sin thinking we don't deserve salvation. But Soul Company, the truth is this. May we look to the God who provides and may we see what he has truly provided. Salvation for all, a trade, Christ's life for your life. You can have the presence of God through the work of Jesus. May we see this in the story, the test, the three days, the trade. May we trust, may we believe, and may we see this God. Let's pray. Father, I can't imagine what Abraham went through in this story. The emotional toll that it took on him, the heartache, the questioning, the doubts, the wondering. And yet he went, him and his son, both of them together. And God, I can't help but think that that's a window into what you and your son went through. I may not know what it's like to be in Abraham's shoes or in Isaac's shoes, but God, you do. Because before eternity even began, you had a plan, both you and the son together to walk up Calvary's hill and make a trade, the life of the firstborn for the life of the world. And God, this is more than just a story written down in a Bible for us to glean what it means to to have faith like Abraham. This is, this is more than just a, a story to move our hearts, to give us an emotional tug. This is more than just a story for us to read about when we come to Salt Company. God, this is your word. This is truth. This is life-changing. So God, I pray that you do what only you can do. God, that we would not leave this place wondering if you're trustworthy that we would leave this place knowing without a shadow of a doubt that you proved it once and for all with Christ on that tree. And may you receive all the glory and the praise and the honor forever and ever. Amen.